Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our show know, each and every week I have the great joy of discussing the parasha, the Jewish uh, section of the Torah that is read in congregations throughout the world uh, during the week. Um, the previous two weeks, we discussed two powerful experiences at Sinai. Two weeks ago, we discussed the revelation and the reception of the Aserata Dibrot, the Ten Commandments. And last week, uh, the Jewish community read the parasha entitled Mishpatim, which lists a series of 53 laws, uh, 20 of them uh, mitzvot aseh, and 30 mitzvot lo aseh, uh, positive and negative commandments. And that parasha concluded with Moses ascending to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Our Torah, reading from the book of Exodus, takes a remarkably different turn now. Our parasha is entitled Terumah. It begins reading on, page, on uh, chapter 25, verse 1, and continues through chapter 27, verse 19. And it introduces us to the building and purposes of the tabernacle. For probably the majority of the remainder of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Torah, this will be our focus. And so this is the introduction to the radical transformation of the Israelites to a uh, people Am Kedusha, a holy people who will express their covenantal relationship through the sacrificial cult. So let me give you an overview of this parasha. The people of Israel are called upon to contribute 13 materials, gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and red dyed wool, flax, goat hair, animal skins, wood, olive oil, spices, and gems, out of which God says to Moses, and I quote the Torah, they shall make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. On the summit of Mount Sinai, having been sent there the week before, Moses is given detailed instructions on how to construct this dwelling for God so that it should be readily dismantled, transported, and reassembled as the people journey in the desert toward the promised land. In the sanctuary's inner chamber, we are told, behind an artistically woven curtain, was the ark, the Aron, containing the tablets of the testimony, engraved with the Aserata Dibrot, which we call in English the Ten Commandments. On the ark's cover stood two winged cherubim, hammered out of pure gold. In the outer chamber stood the seven-branch menorah and the table upon which the showbread was arranged. 
The sanctuary's three walls were fitted together from 48 upright wooden boards, each of which was overlaid with gold and held up by a pair of silver foundation sockets. The roof was formed of three layers of coverings, tapestries of multicolored woolen linen, a covering made of goat hair, and a covering of ram and tachshish skins. Across the front of the sanctuary was an embroidered screen held up by five posts. Surrounding this sanctuary and the copper-plated altar which fronted it was an enclosure of linen hangings, supported by 60 wooden posts with silver hooks and trimmings and reinforced by copper stakes. This very detailed description can be visualized online in a number of different uh, websites. And if it helps you to have a visual, and then it may help you to understand the power of the sanctuary as it proceeds in the desert, as the central symbol of Israel's connection with their God. So to unpack this parasha with me, is Rabbi Paul Gollum, senior scholar and rabbi emeritus of the Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he served as their congregational rabbi for 15 years, a graduate of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He has been a director of Hillel Foundations and the URJ Regional Director for Canada, as well as his congregational responsibility. Rabbi Gollum has taught undergraduate and graduate courses in philosophy, classical, and modern Jewish thought. He is the editor-in-chief of the CCAR Journal, a Reformed Jewish Quarterly, and has published articles on biblical studies, modern Jewish thought, interfaith relations, and Reform Zionism. During his time in Poughkeepsie, Rabbi Gollum served as the president of the Dutchess County Interfaith Council and has been a member of the county's Human Rights Commission and the founder and convener of Skip Scriptural Reasonings, a Jewish, Christian, and Muslim text study symposium. It's a great joy that I welcome Rabbi Gollum to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you very much. Pleasure always to be with you. It is a pleasure to chat with you again about this very interesting parasha. And we want to begin, I think, with the uh, comparison between how the building of this tabernacle is presented to us and how the building of the temple by Solomon is presented to us, because you have a very interesting take on the differentiation. So let's begin there. Right, absolutely. Uh, what we uh, learn in the very first verse, maybe to be more accurate, the very first two verses of uh, this Torah portion, that's uh, verse 1 and 2 of uh, chapter 24, 25, is um, that uh, Moses is told by God that the Israelites are supposed to bring gifts. Uh, and it says very specifically that they're supposed to bring gifts as their heart is so moved. 
making it clear that the word for gift here, the Hebrew word truma, that gives its name to the Torah portion, um, refers to a free will offering. Uh, it, it is not, uh, it, it's not a, uh, it might be an expectation, but it, it's an expectation that must start with the person, uh, him or herself. They must feel the, the, the wish, the need, the desire to actually bring the gift. That's how the, uh, how the tabernacle in the wilderness is going to be built out of the free offerings of Israel. Now, when you move to the passage in 1 Kings chapter 5 that describes Solomon's uh, uh, wish now to construct at God's, uh, in accordance with God's will, a, uh, a place for God to dwell within Jerusalem, the very first, um, among the very first things that are told there is that Solomon drafts workers. And the, and the word that's used here in the Hebrew is moth, which is a word that's used in modern Hebrew to refer to a tax. So I would suggest that however we want to go about translating this Hebrew word, one of the things that's very clear about it is this is no longer free will. This is a coerced obligation. you got to do this or you're going to pay a penalty. And so the temple, which becomes uh, the... The, uh, the, the locus of uh, Israel's experience, so powerful that uh, it, when it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, toward the uh, very beginning of the 6th century before the Christian era, um, it, once the Israelites were able to return, they once again rebuilt it. It was destroyed once more in the year 70 of the Common Era by the Romans. And liturgy, ever since that time, as a matter of traditional liturgy, has prayed for rebuilding once more. But this temple is really, really important. And yet it's completely at odds with the, uh, the notion that is suggested uh, in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, it isn't built as a matter of free will. It's built as a matter of formal coercive obligation. So what do you suggest is the reason for this transformation? Um, those who might be want, listening to us and want to see the text can see, as Rabbi Gollum said, that Exodus 25 is very clear. Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts you shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart so moves him. Which leaves, of course, the possibility, not only that it's a free will offering, but that some will choose not to participate. And as you correctly indicated, in the building of Solomon's, it feels like it's obligatory. What uh, do we understand to be the change here? Yeah, I, I think that's worth uh, taking note. Uh, I, I would uh, first. I, I'd like to preface that uh, answering that by noting that this passage in First Kings is not something that is sort of hidden away, and only a, you know a Bible scholar would know about it uh, by you know a careful reading of uh, of uh, scripture uh, on the very day in the synagogue that we are going to read the passage from Exodus. 
we also read this passage from First Kings. So the, uh, um, the classic sages, what we refer to as the rabbis, who pair together specific readings from the Torah with readings from the prophets, uh, made sure that this reading would be done, that we would see this discontinuation, this contrast between free will and obligation. And I think that they did that precisely because that's something we ought to ponder. Uh, where's the focus when it comes to uh, the uh, establishing a place where uh, human beings and God can meet? What, what, wh where should the focus be? Should it be on the uh, desires of the heart, or should it be on the serious practical responsibility of having such a place? Uh, it, it's, it's a situation that I, I think strikes, and maybe it has struck the rabbis, it certainly strikes me this way, that there are some times in which I will do something that really is important, really valuable, really is for me to do because I actually really want to do it. It's what my heart desires. It, it, um, uh, it, it comports with where I'm at. And then there are other times in which it's really good for me, it's really good to be done, but I really don't want to do it. Well, sometimes you do it anyway. You do it anyway because it needs to be done. And in those cases, possible, Rob, in the I sheer fact could... that it needs to be done, sometimes you just simply need an external pressure to get it done. Uh, so those of us possible, who are married know this very well. Is it possible yes? that we can read the difference related to the notion of um, the establishment of a community ethic? That in Exodus, the Israelites have recently left uh, Egypt. They've had the experience at Sinai, which uh, theoretically brings them together as a community. But might we not say, well, perhaps God, recognizing the transformation into peoplehood is not such an easy dynamic gives them the opportunity for free will. But X hundred years later, with the building of Solomon's temple, they have experienced uh, life in the promised land. They've experienced the success of David's kingdom. And now the text seems to say, you no longer have any doubt about what your communal responsibilities are or about your belonging to a community, and therefore we change that. It's no longer a free will offering because you no longer really have freedom to belong to this people. You are obligated to be there. Could we see this yeah. as simply a reflection of the historical change? I would, I would say so. I, I think that that's uh, uh, something that unfolds. It constantly unfolds. I'm, uh, just bring in uh, something that uh, over the course of the year will will be man made manifest. Um, in um, uh, the two weeks ago, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, 
um, th- there would have been a, uh, a passage about the Israelites having just crossed the, um, uh, the Red Sea and immediately beginning to complain. And one of, the, one of the results of the complaints is that they get attacked by one of the desert tribes, the Amalekites. And in order to fight off the Amalekites, uh, Moses has to beseech God, has to keep his hands up in the air and see to it that God, uh, is, is, in essence, is fighting on Israel's side to, to uh, repel the Amalekites. That's what you have right after the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, you get toward the end of the Book of Numbers, the Israelites have already now been pulled together for roughly 40 years, and they now encounter uh, two uh, forces, the forces of Og and Sion, um, trying to make their way to uh, the Jordan River and cross into the land. Uh, and at this point, there's no reference that they need to beseech God. They've pulled themselves together. They've become a cohesive group that can take care of themselves. Uh, and I think that that's something that you're touching on here, that there really is a development. That which happened immediately after liberation from slavery, with all the emotion and all the power that that contains, is very different than what it's going to be a few hundred years later when they're settled, that they've worked out a political organization, um, and now they have to get on with their lives. Um, and that's a very different. So I think that you've touched on something that is, is quite true and so is reflected in, in the text itself. That's terrific. Thank you. And I hope our yeah. listeners are focusing on this transformation of the uh, slave people, the people who emerge from slavery, who will use the wilderness to define themselves as an entity in relationship with God. But there is an unusual focus. When the people stand at Sinai, they complain to Moses and they say to Moses, um, this voice, this power, this presence is too much for us. You, Moses, you go speak to God on our behalf. It's as if they um, are afraid of this deity who has saved them and who will lead them through the desert. But at the same time, they are charged with building a concrete uh, representation of that deity. And I'm wondering what transpires in the Torah that requires God to move, God who is everywhere, to having a physical locus. Yeah, very useful because uh, what we're told here in this particular Torah portion is that the very first thing to be built is this ark, uh, this uh, container that will carry, as you mentioned, the Pact of the Testimony, the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the, the Torah itself, um, and that this is the place that when one wishes to encounter God, it is specifically here 
that God will be encountered. Um, the uh, those who have seen a synagogue know that normally when you see an ark, it, it is a, like a cupboard. Um, it, you open its doors that are in front and uh, and take a Torah scroll out. What's being envisioned here is much more like a uh, a box with a lid on it, um, and that the uh, the contents are within the box but that God's presence is going to be manifest above the lid, the uh, lid, and that it's going to happen exactly here. Why should this be the case? Once more, uh, there is an evolution, I think a a theological, a spiritual sort of evolution that is being uh, reflected in Scripture, not merely in Torah itself, but the entirety of Hebrew Scripture, and that is moving from a, a world in which gods are imagined, they're given physicality, sometimes in human form, sometimes in other forms, but they're given place, there's temples built for them where, uh, where they are supposed to be encountered, and that it, it's difficult to come to grips with uh, an omnipresent God, a God that can be anywhere. Uh, remember back to the, the story of Jacob. Jacob leaves his father's house. He spends the night some distance away from, uh, from Isaac and is literally shocked by the fact that God is also there. That this is surprising. Uh, it's reflected in the story of Jacob, but it's reflected in our hearts as well. This is something that until you actually become used to it, it's a very foreign, difficult idea to conceive. The first thing that you need to do is pull the people together, have have a sense that there is a locus, a place where God can be encountered, and then, over time, the possibility of encountering God wherever you will let God's presence come in can indeed be uh, established. There is a hint, I should add, in this Torah portion, where it says, uh, build me this tabernacle, and I will dwell among them. And one biblical commentator looks at that and says, wait a second, you build me the tabernacle, and I will dwell in it. Why does it say, I will dwell in them? And that is that once you build the tabernacle, once you give them the opportunity of having a sense of God's presence, they can take that presence that is otherwise external, associated with a place, and bring it to where it actually truly belongs, in their hearts. But that's the process. It doesn't happen overnight, and the, and the, the Bible tells us about that. You know, um, as we're speaking about the building of the tabernacle, um, in my introduction, I spoke about how specific the Torah was that the tabernacle should be ordained with great finery. Finery that one would um, uh, find uh, challenging to discover in the middle of the desert. Um, and yeah. that um, rather than 
talking about where they would get all of these skins and threads, I want to ask you whether you have a sense that um, over the course of Jewish history, um, synagogues and places of worship have continued to be designed with this kind of finery, or was there a change um, to make synagogues much more uh, a makom, a place that God could dwell among them, and a greater sense of simplicity? Yeah, that, that tended to be the, the rules regarding synagogues, as I understand them. Uh, among one of the suggestions is that a synagogue must have decoration, but this is an obligation. And I think that the understanding here is that the, you do the decoration uh, precisely because that's one of the ways in which you honor God. You'll note that virtually every uh, situation when you encounter a Torah scroll, particularly when you open an ark, the Torah scroll is not just simply the scroll with a, a plain cover over it. Very often there is silver associated with it, uh, uh, that there are other accoutrements uh, placed upon it so that um, it will suggest something that is aesthetically greater than, uh, you know, something that's pleasing, something that touches your, your aesthetic sense as well as your spiritual or ethical sense or even intellectual curiosity something that elevates. And I think that that's always been understood. Uh, and it might be built into this as well. Uh, it, it requires an important um, attitude on a person's mind that is, is sometimes very challenging. And that is that you, you build, say, a, a, a fine ark or a very lovely synagogue or a beautiful church, for that matter. And you look at it and you say, my isn't that a beautiful church I've got, or a beautiful synagogue, or a lovely ark that I've built, rather than having the attitude, isn't this a wonderful way in which I can praise God? So there's a tension there between the tabernacle and the place. Jacob, yeah. as you suggested, um, indicates in his dream, I did not go know God was in this place. And the place yeah. was unadorned, but then the Torah, both here and then later in Kings, talks about an adorned locus. Yeah. Well, you've helped us start to unpack this tension between finding God in ourselves and finding God in the unadorned and the necessity for a people to have a locus for their connection, their covenantal connection to God. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Paul Gollum, um, for joining us this morning on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day. <laughs>